Hello everyone, my name is Rosemary Nelson and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. Thank you so much for joining in with this, uh, I suppose, hastily put together online program. As you know, we were forced to cancel the festival three weeks ago uh, because of the COVID-19 crisis and um, we know now that it was the right decision at the, at the time, a little bit nerve-wracking, but uh, as circumstances have changed so rapidly, it was definitely the right decision. Unfortunately, the 160 writers that were in the program couldn't be here this weekend in Newcastle, but uh, a few of them have lent their support to this endeavour of ours, this little experiment, and um, I'm grateful to everyone who got involved. As I said, it's all been done very quickly, but with great enthusiasm, so thank you. Late last year, I applied to Creative New Zealand uh, for some funding to bring five New Zealand writers to the Newcastle Writers' Festival. And um, unfortunately, they, couldn't, they obviously couldn't come with, uh, with circumstances unfolding as they have. But I thought it would be really great if it was a you know, possibility to catch up with a couple of them. And one of those writers is Miriam Lancewood. I first came across Miriam a couple of years ago. I was at Byron Writers' Festival. Hello to the team there, the amazing team led by Edwina Johnson. And um, if you've been to Byron Writers Festival, you know it's held outside in Marquise. And uh, I was walking across the, the lovely grounds there in my own little world and across my path, you know, there was this sort of Amazon that came into my line of sight with a, uh, a bow slung over her shoulder. And I thought, who is this woman? And, uh, and then I went to a couple of sessions she participated in. And it was, um, it was brilliant. It was brilliant hearing her story. And um, I think really timely, actually, to be speaking to Miriam about this book. Uh, Miriam's book, Woman in the Wilderness, um, is an account of her six-year, I suppose, um, exploration of wilderness in New Zealand. And it's not just the one place. She moves around and she has to learn to hunt and, they, and her and her partner, Peter Forage, and they move to different parts of New Zealand and it does conclude with this almighty trail uh, essentially walking the whole length of both islands. So it's a fascinating journey and I think at a time when we're stuck inside and we're probably craving a, um, you know, a bit of nature, it's incredible to be immersed in, uh, in, this, in this pristine world, um, fresh air, animal life, the, the, the flora and fauna she captures so well. So I think it's a really perfect uh, time to actually be talking about this book, given the circumstances. Kia ora, Miriam, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me in this interview and organising all this. Where are yeah. you talking to us from? Uh, at the moment, we are in Golden Bay, New Zealand. That is a northwest um, corner of the South Island. And it's been a little while since this book was published. So I'm really interested in just, I know in your mind, it's probably even longer um, that your journey began. Um, that, 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 and actually, I just want to read the first sentence because I think this, when I first came, started reading this book, um, <laughs> From the first sentence, it gives you an idea of, uh, of what you're getting yourself in for. It is a beautiful yeah. winter's day and I am walking with my bow and arrows on the side of a mountain in search of a wild goat. There you have it. That's that's the start of this activating <laughs> <Yeah>. story. <laughs> that's tell it. Us, tell <laughs> us a little not. bit about what led to that decision. You left your teaching job. Uh, you know, people asked why. It was a quite a big move to, to get rid of all your belongings and, you know, 
trek off with a backpack and about three months supply of food the basics though as i said you're going to hunt and you're going to forage so why what prompted that decision to do this well for a start as a little bit of history um I met Peter in 2006, that's now um, 14 years ago, and um, the moment I met him, we've been traveling and we've been living rough and uh, always on a shoestring, Uh, we've been to countries like Papua New Guinea, and eventually we came to his home country, which is New Zealand. Mm -hmm. I was born in Holland originally. Um, So we had all these years of adventures and living differently. And then I had to work for one year as a teacher, physical education teacher, because that's what I had studied in Holland, um, to get my residency. But during that year, uh, I was, of course, missing that um, life of adventure and the traveling. And um, every weekend, we used to go out in the mountains, camping and hiking. And we never want to come back on Sunday night. We, we said to each other, why can't we just live here all the time? That'd be amazing. Uh, because we didn't really want to continue living in a house for which you have to pay money and having a car for which you have to pay and get the petrol <laughs> and maintenance and all these costs uh, for all these things that we didn't really want in the first place. So to make that choice of let's live in the mountains for one year was not as radical as you might have thought. Because it comes across in a book a little bit that I might have been working for, you know, 10 years or something in, in, uh, in school. But it wasn't quite the case. But, yeah, we wanted to live um, in this beauty of the mountains. And we wanted to be part of nature rather than just an observer. Because when you go ha- hiking and tramping and, uh, and camping, you're sort of looking at scenery, isn't it? You mm. make a picture... And then you look at the pictures when you come home and you sort of feel a distance. And I wanted to be completely connected to the wilderness, a completely part of it. And hunting has really been very helpful in this um, process. In what way? Oh, when you're hunting, (laughs) you are completely part of life and death. You are taking life, which is a horrible thing to do, but it also gives you life because we were, you know, in the, <laughs> in the game of survival. We were um, uh, living out there and hunting, hunting and gathering like all our ancestors did. And so, um, yeah, and hunting also, I had to learn all these um, skills and reawaken all the senses, like my sense of hearing, mm. my sight, everything improved majorly. Mm. And in a way, you know, when we have that kind of environment where we're, I mean, you're in a school, but we work in offices, I often think that our senses become a little bit dull because they don't have to um, to be sharpened. But like you mentioned, when you're hunting, you're, you're alert, you're tuning to sounds, to smells, and, uh, and so in a sense... Yeah, it, it, it's part of your survival. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it reignites them all, all those senses. Yes, indeed. And also when I'm in town, I want to block out all these noises, mm. the air conditioning, the fridge, the, all, the, all these machines that just go on and on and on. Uh, and I think most brains have adapted and they block out all these, um, all these annoying tunes in a way and vibrations. Yeah, it's like um, adaptation. <laughs> 
It's interesting because um, I've, I've just recently reread the book because we were going to be talking at the Writers' Festival and um, and I'd read the book about 18 months ago and I thought I'd better refresh my memory. The very yeah. first mention of a pandemic in, in this book, because it's mentioned a couple of times by different people, is yeah. when you're sort of having your farewell from your school and your manager says to you, um, oh, well, you know, I suppose you'll learn all these skills and and then when we're all get hit by a pandemic, we'll run into the hills and come looking for you for help. And, uh, <laughs> and, and that's really interesting because when I read that the first time, I didn't even pay any attention to that reference. But now in this environment, um, you know, it comes up. Your um, Peter's brother mentions it and then you yep. encounter a doctor who you become friends with Um you know, while you're on one of your sort of, um, at, you're not in the Southern Alps at this point, but you do encounter this doctor, and and you yeah. and Peter asks her what her main concern would be for the future, and she says a pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah indeed. It's, I think uh, people have been waiting for it, especially in the medical uh, areas. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I wasn't waiting for it. Maybe I was completely <laughs> naive and, and, uh, and burying, burying my head in the sand, but I honestly didn't think in my lifetime that, that we would be dealing with the pandemic. I, as I said, maybe it's naivety on my part. But um, So that's really interesting. Can, can you talk us through the process? I mean, you, um, you start off in Mul- Mul- outside Marlborough and it's the, the Southern Alps. And you have to shed all your, you know, your belongings because you're essentially both carrying in a backpack with some basic food supplies like flour and cups of tea. I mean, tea, you know, tea for cups of tea and, um, you know, the very bare essentials. And you, you get to this incredible environment, which I'll get you to describe to us in a moment, but it's difficult at first, isn't it? You, you write about suddenly... The day opens up to you and yeah. it's quiet and there's calm and it seems to me that you're someone who's a real kind of go-getter and really energetic and um, and you struggle with that, don't you, initially, that that sense of, um, well, what do I do now? We're here, but what do I do now? <laughs> yeah, indeed. So we had been preparing for almost a year to get out here and uh, when we finally get to the wilderness, we were dropped off. And um, it was amazing. We said to each other, aren't we lucky? Aren't we lucky to live here? This is absolutely stunning. And then the second day, I thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> There's nothing to do here. It is, um, there is just so much time. And bear in mind, I just came from, like, working in town and um, being in contact with my family and friends, and they're quite busy indeed. And suddenly, there was nothing to do because... Mm-hmm. We also didn't take any communication device, no cell phone, not that it would work, but um, nothing like that, um, not even a clock. So that's also, we had no idea if the time was actually <laughs> actually uh, passing at all. Um, but you end up, so, you, go, you go to bed very early, don't you? And, and um, you, Peter, remarks, winter, yeah. Yeah, Peter remarks a couple of times about how, how long you sleep. I mean, you have these really um, rested, sustained periods of sleep, which I think is the envy of all of us, to be honest, um, uh, in our hectic, crazy lives. Uh, So it's like your whole uh, body rhythm alters in this environment. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, So so we set out in May, which is autumn, 
and the days was already quite short indeed. And um, well, we had no choice. We just went to bed when it's dark. I mean, you can only sit so long around the fire and it got a bit cold and then we went in the tent. And it's amazing how much we still could sleep. Mm. And after weeks and weeks and weeks, um, then um, still able to sleep. Like I'm talking about 13 hours a night. You know, that's more than my toddler nephew. <laughs> it's amazing. And I think that's really good for like hibernation. But in the beginning, the first two weeks were really difficult because my mind had to slow down. And my mind was in the rhythm and the speed of, say, a town city. And suddenly I had to slow down into the rhythm of nature, just so much slower. And Peter said, oh, you know what you have to learn? <laughs> uh, the art of doing nothing. And I thought, well, that's weird. I've sort of avoided that all my life. And now I have to do nothing, not even meditation because meditation is something right yeah <laughs> and sometimes there was just nothing to do but after two weeks my mind became slow much more in tune with nature and then I could just sit at the river and look at you know the leaves falling or you know the beauty of it and it's so well worth going through those first two weeks but in those two weeks you have to go through a period of restlessness and boredom Mm. And that's exactly what we taught to avoid, right? So, um, yeah, sometimes you need to go through boredom to get to that peace, since that peace state of mind. Describe the Southern Alps. I, I mean, I, I'm embarrassed to say my first trip to New Zealand was last year when I went to the Auckland Writers Festival. And I'd been, you know, it's one of those things I think a lot of Australians feel, oh, we'll definitely go, we'll definitely go. And um, thankfully I went. Um, not only is it an amazing festival, uh, hello Anne O'Brien and, and her team there, and uh, sadly yeah. uh, both you know, that festival and also Byron have been cancelled for this year along with ours and a number of festivals, so I'm thinking of everybody there. But um, yeah. it, I didn't, you know, I, I was in Auckland. So, I mean, that's like saying I've been to Australia and I've seen Sydney, but, but that's not the whole of a country. And, uh, and so you, <laughs> went to a, you went to a very specific part, the Southern Alps and the South Island. Can you describe that environment for us? So if we haven't been there, we can get a picture in our mind of what it's like. Oh, it's very diverse. If you go to the West Coast, it's very wet because all the weather comes from the West Coast, hits the mountain, falls as rain. So the West Coast is wet, East Coast mm. is dry. And that looks like sometimes like Mongolia, like a desert, you know. But the places we are looking for is always a river for water and for washing in. And uh, we drink out of the river because it's super clean and super pure and very good. And um, we wash ourselves in the river. We do the dishes in the river. So the river is everything. And the river is always very loud because it, it falls quite quickly because we're in the mountains. Yes. And um, so it's super loud. You might not think of that. But it's like a roaring river always. You always have to sort of shout when you're near the river. Mm. And then we're looking for forest because we need wood to cook on because we always cook on the fire. And we're looking for big beech trees. It's mostly beech uh, in New Zealand, in the mountains, mountain beech. And um, we're camping underneath the huge branches and on top of the roots. So it's quite amazing to be so much in, say, the tree consciousness, whatever mm. that is. <laughs> And, um, yeah, so we need that for wood. And, yeah, yeah, in a day we go exploring and we might walk up the river. The river is like our guideline, so we never get, never get lost. In the beginning I was afraid to get lost, but actually that's impossible. You just walk up the river 
which you can hear at all times. <laughs> and go further, further, up and up and up. And in the end, the river becomes a little creek and big boulders and rocks and you might have to climb. And then uh, you come slowly, slowly to the top of the mountains. And quite often, there is a little lake, uh, like a pond. And you have the feeling that maybe no one has ever seen it because, you know, it's so small and mm. not like a tourist attraction. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and then you're among those, all that rocky environment. And that's also the place where we sometimes see Shemwa and Ta. It's like a mountain goat. And, um, yeah, it's amazing to be in such a dynamic environment and the dynamics is caused by the weather that uh, you might wake up in the morning very nice and clear and as it is now it's always windy here you might hear the wind even on the audio um, the wind brings new weather so we could easily have snow and hail in the afternoon so that makes it very exciting <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's in a way the weather becomes your um, your television, your, I mean, it's the stimulation, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. But also the weather indicates what we're going to do. If it's raining, we just have to sit in the tent and mm. we play and read books or one book. <laughs> of course, we don't have many books. And when it's good weather, we get out straight away because we have to mm. take our chance. Yeah. You, Very different from the outback in Australia. <laughs> yeah, the complete opposite. Um, you took this journey with Peter, uh, your partner. Tell us a little about a little bit about him and um, and you know what impact this experience because it was extended uh, over six years and as a you know different periods you know you might take up. Um, accommodation in an isolated hut somewhere you sort of meet these people and your journey takes different paths over these six years you're not based for six years in the southern alps um so it's good for a reader because you get to get a taste of a lot of different parts of new zealand so i really enjoyed that but, but who's peter and uh and and what was it like because i think a lot of people would struggle to um Although I suppose now we're in isolation, where it's probably challenging us as in our relationships, possibly the same way, because you're with each other all the time. I know that there are periods where you do take little, um, you go off on your own. You feel very strongly that you, you, you know, you want to do have some independence within that dynamic, and you'll go off for a couple of days hunting, etc. But, but overall, yeah. you spend a lot of time together. And uh, so tell us a little bit about Peter and, and that, that, that you know, the impact this experience had on your relationship. Yeah, I'll first revert a little bit to your first question. Yeah, we always stay nomadic because after one year in one place, we sort of feel like, wow, this country is so amazing. Mm. We should be seeing other places. So that's why we always uh, move around. And we never stay, we stay two years in for one year at a time. All the rest, it's been a few months and sometimes only a few days. Uh, so always moving, yeah. And I think that is also the dynamic part of our relationship. That I don't know if Peter and I would go doing very well if we had to stay in one place. Mm. <laughs> if we actually settled down, I think our, our relationship would deteriorate. Um, because then it's maybe too much the same. Yeah, it's sort of something I discovered recently. <laughs> so um, I think it's really good for us to keep moving. But Peter, uh, I met Peter 14 years ago in India. I was 22 and he was 52. So it's a huge age difference, as in 30 years. And had I met him in Holland, where I was brought up, I think I would have thought he was too old. I mean, he's like almost the same age as my parents, <laughs> after mm. all. 
Uh, but in India, everything is a little bit crazy. <laughs> and you can just about do whatever you like. And there's, I feel, very little judgment as a foreigner. And uh, so I thought, okay, I, I uh, hang out with this person because he told me that he used to be a university lecturer in New Zealand. He gave up everything. He sold everything and went with one little backpack to live in India. And he already lived there for five years when I met him. Mm. I had never heard of something, somebody doing like this. <laughs> it was like a total new experience to meet a person who had left everything behind. So that was a good starter, very good first impression. And I was looking for somebody to walk the Himalayas with. Now, every um, summer, he used to go into the Himalayas, um, traveling over the, all those mountain ranges by himself or with other people. And um, he was also looking for somebody to climb the Himalayas with, and so we went together. And after this amazing journey, which was still the most amazing journey in my life, it lasted only two months, but um, It's it a very pretty impressive. special place, isn't it? I've, I've trekked in Nepal and... Um it is it's I mean you know but at least in New Zealand you've got decent mountains I mean we can't even really have make that claim here in Australia we, you know <laughs> no. the, the foothills the foothills in uh in the Annapurna ranges were taller than our tallest mountain here Mount uh Kosciuszko and uh and yeah. I you know we got up to 5,000 meters you know and that's just really that's baby mountain level in, in the Himalayas. Yeah, but when you climb the 5,000 metres, we did eight mountain ranges, five over 5,000 metres, which is, as you say, not that high there. Mm. But um, altitude, you can't breathe. Mm. It's really tough going. But anyway, um, yeah, we did that um, trekking together and I thought, well, just let's see how it goes. Uh, with Peter and I, I thought I'm never going to sort of marry him. <laughs> uh, let's just <laughs> see how long we can travel. Um, but um, one year became 14. Um, and it's interesting. Actually, it's really interesting to be together for so long. I never expected that <laughs> because you sort of build history together and you know each other really well and you can depend on each other. It's a real beauty in it, I find. Yeah. Yeah, so um, despite the age difference, we get on really well. And I think it's because we're so different. He is very academic. Um, he cannot stop reading books. <laughs> <laughs> he um, learns so much. That's really his passion, reading books. And I'm you very... Want, you, want to go out, you want to go out on your own and... and, uh, and Use your bow and arrow and capture goats. <laughs> <What? Yeah. laughs> so I go hunting and he goes, he, he does the cooking. Yeah. Uh, and he reads all those books and he gives me a summary of those books. Yeah. And um, so we're very, very different. But I guess because of that, we're not competing. And I think in a lot of relationships, the people, the, the couple are so similar, almost like brother and sister, and they never stop competing. Mm. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it might be the case in some with some couples, but it works very well with us. There, there are moments. I mean, there, there. I think it's interesting because uh, I mean, the subtitle of the book is a story of survival, love, and self discovery. So, there are discoveries you make within the relationship, um, not only about Peter, but about yourself and and how you are in a relationship, and I suppose what what you need and. Um, and he points out at one uh, at one stage, 
not that you're, you've become codependent, but um, I forget the phrase he uses, but I think he almost prods you in a way um, to sort of, you know, to have agency to, I mean, not that you don't, you're a strong woman. I, I, I'm finding it hard to explain it, but, I, I, you know, in the context of the book, it does make sense when you're reading it. You, you, you'll be able to explain it better. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's a point where, you know, even within yeah. the relationship, he says, you know, I, I, let's shake it up a little bit. Um, yeah, he says um, uh, inter-independence, yeah, to mm. be, well, he always encourages me to um, be able to be alone. Because let's face it, one day I will be alone. Um, mm. Most likely uh, I will outlive Peter. And so I knew that from the beginning. And so I always encourage myself and he encourages me to do things on my own and um, to think independently, to be independent and all that. Yeah, so it's good. Mm. Can we just touch on the hunting aspect? Because as I said, I remember the first time I saw you, you had your bow slung over your shoulder at Byron Riders Festival. <laughs> and it's a, it's a beautiful props, yeah. it's a beautiful bow. I mean, it's such a striking instrument and it's not something you see every day, uh, definitely not anything oh, you see every day. Uh, but yeah. hunting, it's not easy. It's not, I mean, from reading the book, it's not an easy process and it's definitely not an easy process using a bow and arrow. Yeah. And I found some of the most um, compelling parts of the book is when you go hunting and because you go off on your own and you, you're learning to listen and to look for clues and and you, you make mistakes. You have a, you know, yeah. you have a, you know, there's that failure, uh, that initial big failure when you, you, you sort of get an animal but it's not quite complete and <laughs> the animal's, you know, and, 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 and you struggle, you, you struggle with, um, causing suffering and you struggle even when yeah. you do eventually kill an animal and you've got to um, process that. I mean, cut the animal up and take it back to camp and cook it up. And it, I think we all like to think if we we're pushed, we could all do it. But having read your book, I don't know that we could all willingly or just automatically do that, even if our survival depended on it. It's it's a it's a big leap, isn't it, in the way we think about animals, the way we um, we process killing an animal. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I think you could learn it though, because our ancestors uh, survived this way. And I grew up in Holland. Uh, my mother was vegetarian, so she never cooked meat. So I had nothing to do with meat or animals. Um, we yeah, ate rice and lentils, you know. <laughs> um, so I learned this, yeah, but it was um, a long learning process to learn how to hunt with a bow and arrow. First, I started off with archery. For a year, I spent practicing um, shooting on a target. Every day, um, I shot 30 arrows. Mm. Every single day for a year. Then I thought, right, I'm pretty good at this. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> and, of course, it wasn't anything like that. Mm. Um, that first winter, I never saw an animal. I never saw one because shooting on a target is something totally different from uh, finding an animal. Mm. Where are the animals? Uh, we thought every, over the whole South Island, there are always some deer, some goats, some pigs, some possums. But no, some areas have, are full with uh, goats and some areas are full with possums. You know, they're not uh, evenly spread. So all those things we had to learn. Mm. Um, but 
yeah, to finally come, that was the first summer, then I finally shot my first goat, and this is the horn of the first goat, not a shot with a bow and arrow. Um, because it was such an achievement. <laughs> oh. I was so incredibly happy. You couldn't imagine uh, how relieved I was that I finally did this after basically one and a half years of practice and losing so many arrows and um, so many times uh, failure. I felt like a failure of coming back and nothing, you know. Mm. Uh, but finally I shot that animal and uh, it was a small goat and it was tragic. Because uh, the Billy and the nanny, the parents, uh, stood around. I shot the little goat, and all of us understood that I was not going to shoot any, anybody else. And so they stood around for so long. And eventually the Billy said, well, uh, let's go. Mm. Um, but it was just so tragic that I had tears in my eyes when um, all this happened. So they were, they were grieving. They were mourning the death of their child. Yeah, and they're sort of very puzzled, like, mm. what has happened? Oh, little Billy. <laughs> mm. And then uh, in the end, they sort of reluctantly went away. And, um, well, anyway, um, mm. I did it. And then I carried the little goat on my back for an hour to walk back to camp. And then the elation of um, this achievement, uh, yeah, I was, of course, extremely happy and relieved and Peter too. Mm. Because yeah. you are, you're but not the- just... You're not just hunting for fun. Uh, you need the protein. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what comes out in the book. That, I mean, there are, you, you go to bed hungry at times and there's only so much sort of kind of damper you can make, that what we call damper, you know, the bread. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. not sustainable. You can't, it doesn't sustain you. And, and, and at different points you're doing quite lengthy walks and, um, and you know, it's physically demanding. And you talk about when you eat meat, the, the, the yeah. boost it gives you. Yes, indeed. Um, so that first winter, I never saw an animal with my bow and arrow, but we trapped a lot of possums. And it's totally illegal in Australia, but in New Zealand, they're classified as a pest and they want to get rid of them. So um, everyone is sort of trying to reduce the numbers. Not mm. many people are thinking of eating them, though. And they're actually very good meat. But I did manage to trap possums in that first winter. And that's when we discovered how much we needed the meat to keep warm. Because we started to lose weight and we started to uh, wake up with hunger pains in the morning for not having enough calories. Because the beans and rice wasn't enough in the high mountains. We were at 1,000 meters up. It was really cold ice everywhere, waterfalls were frozen, and we were sleeping in our little tent, keeping warm around the fire, um, mm. but just the rice wasn't enough. You end up, uh, so you, you move around a bit, you do encounter different people, and what becomes clear is that you, you're not quite ready to sort of settle back into everyday life. You know, you're not ready to go and, and rent a house and... You, you, you get experience of that. There are different periods where, you know, you head into civilization and have a break, pick up supplies, um, connect with people, get on the internet madly, email your parents or, um, you know, let people know you're still alive. But so you decide yeah. to do this, you decide to do this um, famous trail, which runs the sort of all the way from the top of the North Island, all the way across both islands to the south to Invercargill. Um, yep. An enormous trail right through the middle of, of the two islands. 
I kind of thought, are you serious? When, when I read that you were doing that <laughs> after everything you'd been through, um, I thought, wow, they, these guys are pretty amazing. They, 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 they want a challenge. And Peter's a little bit concerned. I mean, it is physically arduous um, and that yeah, does, it, it does challenge you. It does challenge you because you're not staying in the one spot for the length of time that you had been at previous locations. You're moving. No, it's not yeah. yeah, but what really struck me when you're describing this walk is you, you get scared a couple of times in the book, um, but you the ocean is is unnerving to you. You're unnerved by waves and <laughs> yeah, it's really and, running. Have you seen the West Coast? <laughs> but to an Australian, yeah, we, to an Australian, we I just think really. I mean, we. You know, my nine-year-old gets out in huge surf, six, you know, four or five metres, um, not metres, feet, Wait. I should say. She, she swims and takes on big, you know, like in Australia where we, the big big, <laughs> big waves and surf are part of our um, understanding, you know, we grow up with it. And I was so, you know, here you are, you've climbed mountains, you've, you've trekked, you've, um, you know, hunted animals. And then when you start this, uh, this trail, it's the ocean that you find, um, you know, you just, you, it's very unfamiliar to you. And I suppose growing up in yeah. the Netherlands, that's obviously yeah. why. Uh, yeah, although the Netherlands does have the North Sea, but that's mm. very calm. Uh, nothing like the waste on the West, west Coast. Um, and I see no one swimming there. No one goes near the water. Mm. So maybe I sort of pick up on the general idea of the ocean is dangerous. Mm. They forget you sort of a thing. But, um, yes, I think um, I am now familiar with mountains and rivers and I know how to cross rivers and I know how to sit through a lightning storm. Mm. Um, But the ocean is relatively unknown to me. And um, what we did after the TRO, probably in your questions after, but we started walking through Europe and suddenly I had to deal with bears and I was shit scared. <laughs> yeah. Never been more scared in my life. Um, did you encounter yeah, any bears? Did you, did you encounter any bears? Well, we didn't see them, but um, we did see their footprints. They look exactly like a human footprint, but in big, mm. like five toes. Yeah, it's amazing. Mm. And all very fresh in the snow and that. So, um, yeah, they were definitely around. And the villagers were saying, oh, don't go sleeping out there. You get eaten by bear. Um, so we were warned. <laughs> mm. But, yeah, I have no experience with dangerous animals. And um, if you are in Australia, in the outback mm. there, I guess people are way more accustomed to snakes and well, you don't, crocodiles. You, I mean, and you, you don't even have to go to the outback. I mean, we... You know, Newcastle yeah. is pretty. We we have snakes in you know bushland just on the fringes of Newcastle, and uh, and that's a big city. So, uh, we're we're yeah. accustomed to you know venomous spiders and um and snakes, uh, but of course yeah, we yeah. don't we don't want to encounter them. We're not looking for them. <laughs> it's uh, not something that we um we're so relaxed about uh, that um, we're you know we're like oh yeah there's a snake. Like I think everyone has that um, prime primordial sort of response to seeing a snake um but yes we, have, <laughs> we do have a lot of unlike new zealand we do have a lot of uh, of dangerous uh, dangerous animals yeah at one point um I'm, I'm looking at the time now thinking oh i've got so much more to ask you but i, I do want to draw your attention to at one point peter says now i, I made a note of it um he, he says 
whatever it might mean, this pure and wild place, and that's when you first start, should change yeah. our consciousness. And yeah. I wondered if you could talk just a little bit about that. Did it? Did it change your consciousness? Was it as straightforward as that? Oh, it's hard to, because consciousness is such such a deep level in a way. It's easy, it's not so easy to sort of gauge that. But, um, yeah, we wanted to find out what happens with our body and mind uh, when living in such beauty and in such an isolation. So, indeed, I think it has changed us. Surely it has. Um, it's been now nearly 10 years ago we set out to live in the wild. I think I have a lot more awareness generally and my senses have all improved, what I said before. Eyesight and my hearing and sense of intuition and, um, yeah, and general awareness of things. And this is really good, but it's kind of hard living in civilization mm. because then you also notice so much. And, um, yeah, for, for example, I think things like fear, and this is quite relevant to the corona now, uh, is very contagious. And maybe you can pay attention to it, just how contagious this is. So you are, for example, feeling quite happy, and then suddenly you meet someone else who is afraid, and suddenly you feel that fear, quite physical, in your own legs. I feel it in my legs, in my own body. Mm. And then I think, hang on a minute, uh, I wasn't afraid to start with. And I'll obviously pick this up from someone else. And I think this happens all the time. And not only with fear either. This happens, um, yeah, with energy and all these things. I find it fascinating. Mm. Well, it's interesting because you're talking about encountering someone almost physically and, and that tr that fear transferring. But I think too, and, and I know that you're not active on Facebook or, or social media, but uh, now that's another way that that fear is transferred. It's transferred through social media so you can you know open up and you know maybe your Facebook account be having a perfectly normal day and then someone posts something and yeah. you feel it you know you if you're in a certain state of mind it, it can it, it just sort of almost leaks off the screen and 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 starts affecting you yes indeed and I think we have to sort of protect ourselves a little bit mm. or just be aware of it yeah if you're aware of it it can come and go easier but if you identify with it then that fear has become you, right? Mm. So, um, and then you have to sort of go and process it and <laughs> take such a long time to uh, think your way out of it again. Mm. So, Miriam, before I have to let you go, I'm interested in your perspective on uh, the coronavirus. I mean, New Zealand obviously has been in a strict kind of lockdown for a, about a week now and, uh, and yeah. the Prime Minister there has been praised for her um her kind of uh, her strong approach to this her um you know quite dramatic in a way but I think that everyone else is looking at her decisions and seeing that there's there's merit in it um definitely H how are you finding it I mean you're you're free you know you look like you're in a, a nice open place and you're not stuck in a an apartment in downtown Auckland uh, which I think would probably <laughs> not be very good for you or your well-being um no. but you know, this, this idea that you can't, you, you've lost that freedom to just go wherever you want um, and how are you being affected by it all? Uh, I'll first explain, um, since one year now, we are living in this natural place, sort of off-grid here in Golden Bay, because I have been writing uh, my second book. 
and it's called um, Wild at Heart and will come out in October. And just yesterday, I have finished the manuscript. So oh, that's why I'm very excited. <laughs> and uh, I am free once again. But um, so we had to of, be in a... You've kind of been in a form of isolation for some time then writing yeah. a book. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Stuck behind a laptop. Um, so, we, so we had to be in a place with electricity in the laptop. Mm. Um, but since a week, New Zealand is in lockdown. And it is amazing how quiet it is. <laughs> because when we came out of the wilderness, or out of the mountains, we always feel, um, quite literally feel the noise. It's like the hum of a mega machine. We and it's sort of a relentless, relentless noise. And now, since a week, we feel like it's quietened down. Mm. The mega machine has come to a grinding halt. Mm. <laughs> Long may it last. Mm. <laughs> it won't. Of course, things will come back to life mm. and then um, the home because it's an economic disaster. That's what I think. Yeah. But while we are in lockdown, people can take their time for contemplation and a little bit of reflection. And I think only good things come out of it because then people are a little bit forced to look at their life and their meaning of life and the meaning of their job and the meaning of driving up and down to the office. Um, and they might make some good changes. I think on a personal level for people's personal life, um, this is a very, very good moment. On an economic level, it's a disaster. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I think we're going, uh, the, la- the, the years of abundance, I think, are finished. Mm. And we're going into a different time. But uh, what there will be, who knows? Mm. That's it. None of us know. That's one thing you can guarantee. Not even the experts can guarantee with any certainty how we're going to be thinking or feeling in the, uh, you know, in six months' time or w- where we're going to be at in six months' time. So that's it's challenging. It's kind of uh, across the board, isn't it? It's made us all equal. That uncertainty, uh, yeah. no one's protected from that really, you know. It's, <laughs> no, it's well, what a momentous moment. Uh, 2020, we're never going to forget this year. No. It's amazing. It is. <laughs> it is extraordinary. And yeah. um, I'm not going to forget it either because it's, uh, I never thought I'd be cancelling the Writers' Festival because of a pandemic. I can tell you, if you told me at Christmas time or even we launched the program three weeks before we cancelled, uh, if you told me that night, this amazing night, everyone in great spirits and um, celebrating the program, if you'd said to me that night, look, um, in three weeks' time there's not going to be a festival, I, I would have thought you were you're crazy. I mean, <laughs> the, the coronavirus was not a known thing, but not, you know, I think it just has taken us a while all to kind of deal with it. But um, I am so glad that I've had this opportunity still to, to speak with you. And uh, I want to yeah. thank, I want to thank Creative New Zealand because um, the funding was provided and all your flights, you your five New Zealand writers were booked and um, they've been incredible since, uh, since cancelling and, and providing their support. And they're excited that we've gone ahead with this conversation. So I want to thank everyone at Creative New Zealand, also the Publishers Association of New Zealand, um, who I've been dealing with in terms of the logistics of everything. So thank you. Yeah. And thank you for tuning yeah, in on a Sunday. Thank you um, for being here. And Miriam, all the best. And I look forward uh, to the new book. And hopefully we'll get you back to Newcastle and you can come and visit uh, our city when everything calms down and, um, and talk yeah. about the new book. And, and if you do come out, I want you to bring the bow. 
Ja. For the spectacular effects. Yeah. And yeah. Um, if you'd like to buy Miriam's book, uh, there's information in the session description. You can click through to our wonderful bookseller, McLean's Booksellers, and um, you can buy Miriam's fantastic book, Woman in the Wilderness. Uh, perfect read for this time. Yeah, and it's also it's- an audiobook. Also an audio book, that's right, and um, yeah. you, you'll be transported. And I think that um, we all need a little bit of that at the moment uh, to, to sort of just escape our, our, our much uh, our closed-in uh, narrow life at the moment. Um, so it's a perfect read, take you to some incredible parts of New Zealand. And, look, it's made me so desperate to get back uh, to New Zealand and spend some more time there. So um, I'm looking forward to that. It's a great tourism uh, tourism advertisement, I think, for New Zealand. Um, so uh, and look uh if you do if you do want to support the festival uh we obviously lost our main source of income with uh, the loss of the the festival uh you can donate there is a link also in the session description and we really appreciate your support and uh, hopefully we'll be back bigger and better in 2021 thank you everyone thanks miriam take care thank you so much bye-bye